today uh, we do begin our study. A lot of you have been looking forward to this. I don't know why, but uh, we begin our study uh, in the Great Tribulation in Revelation chapter number 6. And there's some really interesting stuff in here, but, but uh, uh, we'll only get our feet wet in it today and then uh, we'll get uh, into a lot more detail beginning next week. Uh, if you remember in the last chapter, John had witnessed the Lamb on the throne and the Lamb had been given the scroll and we believe that to be maybe the scroll of Daniel, or if nothing, uh, at the minimum, it's the prophecies about the great tribulation and the return of Jesus Christ. And that scroll is about to be opened, and the scroll has seven seals. As we come to chapter seven, I mean, I'm sorry, as we come to chapter six, we're going to see those seals be opened, and uh, uh, we're going to see uh, the... Uh, great tribulation begin. So, so go with me to Revelation chapter number 6 and look at verse number 1. Chapter number 6, verse number 1. It says, Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of, and I heard one of the living, one of the four living creatures. Now we looked at that. Creature is a bad translation there. That's a living being. Uh, it's one of the four living beings who represent the attributes of God. So that makes sense now what he says next because he says, saying with a loud voice, a voice like thunder. So we know that voice is like the voice of who? The voice of God. And so this is God speaking to John, and he speaks with a voice like thunder. And I think that's symbolic of the fact that some great trouble is about to come upon the world and this thunder is sort of a warning and listen to what he says he says to John he says come and see now we don't know which one of the four creatures this is because and it really doesn't matter because all four of these creatures represent or these living ones represent the attributes of God and so it is God speaking to John and and what he tells him he says come and see and he what he's going to do he's going to take him into the future and he's going to let him see the events that transpire on this earth during the Great Tribulation. That's a pretty amazing thing to do. He's actually, these things in God's eyes have already taken place. That's why there's such detail in the book of Revelation. In eternity, they've already taken place. And so he takes John out of time and he takes him into the future. And John sees these events as they unfold. And what John is going to see is pretty horrific. And it's pretty bitter to his soul. You're, when we get to chapter 10, John is going to be given a scroll. And he's going to, God's going to ask, or the angel's going to tell John to eat the scroll, to swallow the scroll. And, he, and the scroll is both, when John swallows it, it's both bitter and sweet. Well, you could, that, that, that scroll could be uh, the book of Revelation. That scroll could be... Uh, really any book in the Bible because every book in the Bible parts of it are sweet to the soul and parts of it are bitter to the soul and that's especially true when you get to the book of Revelation we've looked at these first six chapters or first five chapters of Revelation and it's pretty sweet to the soul you get to chapter 19 and it's, it's pretty sweet to the soul you get to chapter 20 and 21 and 22, and it's really sweet to the soul. But what we're going to get right now is, is some really bitter stuff. And, and we're going to see in the next 13 chapters these terrible times that have kind of come upon the earth during the Great Tribulation. And uh, uh, it's going to be really, really bad. And, and uh, here's one of the things I want you to see. The book of Revelation is not the only place where we're given details about the Great Tribulation. We're, we're over and over again in the prophets, we're told about this coming wrath of God. We're told about the day of the Lord. We're told about it in the, in the, in the letters, in the epistles. We're told about it in the gospels. Jesus told us about the wrath of God that come. We're told about the wrath of God all the way back in the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy. And so this is not something that's just unique to the book of Revelation. 
Let me take you for a minute over to the book of Isaiah. If you will, go with me to Isaiah chapter 13. And just listen to how terrible this description is that Isaiah gives us of the great tribulation. Look, Look in chapter 13 of Isaiah. Go back about to the middle of your Bible, and you'll find that big old book of Isaiah. And turn, turn to chapter number 13, and look down at verse number 6, chapter 13, verse number 6. Listen to what he says. He says, well, well, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It, it, it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will be limp. Every man's heart will melt, and they will be afraid. Pangs of sor- and sorrows will take hold of them. They will be in pain as a woman in childbirth. They will be amazed at one another. Their faces will be like flames. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he will destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and the constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its goings forth, and the moon will cause not cause its light to shine. Now, that's a pretty terrible description of what's going to take place in the Great Tribulation. Flip over to Isaiah 34 while you're here in Isaiah. Just listen to what he has to say here. In Isaiah 34, look at verse number 1. Isaiah 34, verse number 1. Come near you nations to hear, and heed you people. Let the earth hear, and all that is in it, the world and all the things that come forth from it. For the indignation of the Lord is against all nations and his fury against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. He has given them over to slaughter. Also, their slain shall be thrown out. Their stench shall rise from their corpses and the mountains shall be melted with their blood. All the host of heaven shall be dissolved and the heavens shall be uh, rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall down and the leaf as the leaf falls from the vine, as the fruit falls from the fig tree. Now, that's some pretty terrifying stuff. But all that is is just a general summary of what's going to take place uh, during the Great Tribulation. When we get into these next chapters in the book of Revelation, chapters uh, 6 through 19, we're going to get specific details about this terrifying event. And I got to tell you, most people don't want to hear about it. We'll be lucky if we got 10 people left in here by the time we, you know, all y'all want to go into Revelation. But this is not pleasant to the soul. It is not sweet to the soul what we're about to witness as we join John as he looks at this vision of this very terrifying event. Look, I listen to a lot of people preach along the radio And I hear sermons all the time. I've heard hundreds of sermons on Revelation chapter 1 through 5. I've heard hundreds of sermons on Revelation chapter 19 through 22. But I've heard almost zero on Revelation chapter 6 through uh, 19. And the reason, I mean, I've heard people exegete it as they go through the book of Revelation like we're going to do. But it's not something you, if you're a topical preacher, you pull out on Sunday and preach to your congregation. If they were to do that, some of these churches in Lafayette, they would all fire the preacher. They wouldn't want to hear that. And you're not going to want to hear it. But it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible. And it has to be preached. People need to hear what we're about to hear. I was talking to a friend of mine who lives out of town uh, this past week. And he was telling me that he had been asked to lead a Bible study of this large group of Christians uh, in, his, in the town where he lives. And he likes prophecy. He likes studying prophecy. So he chose to do his study uh, on the apostate church in the light of this coming tribulation that the world's about to face. And uh, he talked about how Uh, the church, instead of becoming stronger and stronger as this day approaches, it's getting weaker and weaker, and it's piling up for itself false teachers who just want to tickle people's ears. They don't want to hear that kind of stuff. Well, after he finished the study, 
the leader of the group told him, look, you can't ever teach in our class again. Uh, you, you don't, you, we don't want to scare people like that with passages like you were bringing up. Uh, passages about judgment and passages about false teachers. You might make them think they're going to a bad church or something. Well, hello, they, they might be if they have never heard that before. Well, all we're going to teach here in our Bible study is passages about love. Passages that are sweet to the soul. Sweet to the ear. Now, the Bible's full of those. But you can't have one without the other. There's several dangers of that kind of thinking, that line of thinking. Let me just address a couple of them. The first one is, if you ignore the passages about judgment and sin and the coming tribulation, you're going to gut the Bible of some of its major themes. And you're going you're gonna to be teaching a Bible that's not really the Bible that we, we have, this 66 set of books that God has given to us. Look, this stuff might not be sweet to the Spirit, and people might not want to hear this, but there's a reason that it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible because it invokes repentance, and people need to repent. You can't have those passages about love if there's no repentance. People have to be warned and they have to be ready to be changed in order to be changed. Now, that's why the Bible is full of passages like this. It's full of passages like this. That's why we have the prophets. I mean, if you, if you, don't, if you don't want to talk about judgment and you don't want to talk about end times and you don't want to talk about the second coming of Jesus Christ and you don't want to talk about the great apostasy, you've got to take out all of the prophets because it's all, it's all in those prophets. So you've taken out about a third of the Bible right there. But you might as well take out books like Jude and Titus or much of the material in those books, Second Timothy, and, 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 and for sure the book of Revelation because the Revelation is all about the coming great tribulation and the second coming of Jesus Christ and the revelation of Jesus Christ. But you can't just pick and choose what you like to hear and ignore the rest. Those passages that we looked at a while ago in Isaiah... They come in the middle of a book. Now, they're pretty hard to swallow, but they come in the middle of a book that has so much good news and talks so much about the love of God that it's called the gospel of Isaiah. But right in the middle of those books are these warnings because if you don't heed the warnings, you can't have the gospel. And so, so it's critical to salvation that people are taught these things. And right along those lines, I mean, the second serious area that I see in, in that kind of thinking is that people don't want to study about the prophets or the end times or the apostasy or any of those things because they only want to study about love. Well, let me tell you what. Those passages are about love. They're all about love. They're not only about love, they're about hope. The hope that we have, not in this world as it exists today, but in this world as it's going to be when Jesus Christ returns. Man, I, every day I get up, or almost every day I get up, I cry out, Maranatha, Lord. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. This world is getting really, really bad. And without these passages, I would have no hope. We're not just going to stick our heads in the sand and all these terrible things are going to go away. It's going to get worse and worse and worse and worse, and we need to know that that's about to happen. So we're prepared for that. And, man, don't tell me that this isn't love. I mean, the book of Revelation is, is, is one of the, I, I, there's more as much about the love of God in the book of Revelation as there is anywhere else in the Bible. It's all about the love of God. Those letters, those seven letters that Jesus wrote to the seven churches, you know what those were? They were love letters. Even the church of Laodicea, he says, I'm at your door and I'm knocking. If you'll just open the door, I'll come in and I'll dine with you and you'll dine with me and you'll find peace and you'll find joy and everything you're looking for. And that's the church that's going to go into the great tribulation and he's begging them to open the door. Why is he begging them to open the door? Because he loves them. And all of those rebukes and, and chastisements that he gives in those love letters is to wake the church up to get people serious about their relationship with him, to be watchful and be ready for him and to be looking for him so you don't miss out. 
so you don't go into the great tribulation, so that you pray that you'll be counted worthy not to go into the great tribulation. That's all about love. And all of the tribulation we're going to see is really about love. And that's why he gives us all this terrifying detail to warn us. He, if he didn't love us, he wouldn't warn us. Let me make an application of that. If you truly love someone, you truly want to see them saved, you're going to warn them. You know, if this place empties out and I lose my zero salary, I don't get a salary, by the way. If I, don't, if I lose whatever I get out of this and all of y'all walk away, I'm still going to teach this because I care about you. And I want you to be prepared, and I want you to be watchful. I want you to take this stuff serious. Man, we take way too much junk serious. And we put the Lord on the back burner, and I'm warning you, he's coming very, very soon. And me included, we all need to get ready for his coming. I'll tell you what, if we're not ready, you might be part of the apostate church. If, all, if you love this world, you know what the, one of the things we're going to see when we talk about the reasons for the great tribulation is to, is to get the apostate church to wake them up, to wake them up, to get them weaned from this world. And if we don't wean ourselves, then there's going to be tribulation in our life. It might not be the great tribulation, but God's going to send tribulation in our life that weans us from this world. And he warns us because he loves us. You know, if you watch the news and you watch what's been taking place in our world, you have to get serious. You have to want to, you have to see something bad is about to happen. And we need to get serious about our lives and about our relationship with the Lord. These recent world events that we've been watching has everybody wondering if the time is near i got news for you, it is near. And that gives us opportunity. That gives us an opportunity. We, we, if we love people, then we want to warn them, yes, the time is near. And yes, is a bitter message to swallow. But God is going to judge this world and he's going to judge you if you're not a born-again believer. And whenever you... Witness in that way, inevitably, you're going to be asked the question, how could a loving God pour out such terrible judgments on his creation? Especially on the part of his creation that was created in his own image, the human race. How could a loving God do that? to the crown of his creation? Well, I want to explore the answers to that question in a bit, but, but before we do, let's cover a few other introductory matters to, the, to this subject of the Great Tribulation, these next 13 chapters that we're going to be looking at. The Great Tribulation that's described in Revelation, if you get your bulletins out, you'll be able to follow me here, is, to, is divided into three sets of judgments. And if you don't have a bulletin, David's going to put a slide up here that you can look at as we go through this. And if you, if you, the first set of judgments is the seven seals. The seven seals, the first seal is, uh, uh, the first through the fourth seal are the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which we'll, we'll look at next week. The fifth, it's very interesting, by the way, Okay, if you're, those of you that are following Zechariah, next week we'll be covering the uh, four horsemen of the apocalypse on Sunday morning. And this Wednesday night, Zechariah has his vision of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. It's kind of strange that we've followed through the minor prophets and we arrive at the same place at the same time. I think maybe God's telling us that this is some really serious stuff and that he's speaking to us. And so we'll be looking at those four horsemen of the apocalypse. 
Then the fifth seal is the cry of the martyrs. The sixth seal is the great earthquake. The seventh seal is the seven trumpets. Now pay attention to that for a second. The seven trumpets that are blown. Because the next set of judgment are the seven trumpets. So look at, you can look at the slide there. The first trumpet, the vegetation on earth is destroyed. The second trumpet, the seas are assaulted. The third trumpet, the rivers and springs are made bitter. The fourth trumpet, the stars are struck. The the sixth, fifth trumpet, the plague of locusts. Uh, The sixth trumpet, the army of horsemen. The seventh trumpet is the seven, watch it now, the seven bowls of wrath are poured out. See the connection there? So now we get to our third set of judgments, and that's the seven bowls of wrath beginning in chapter number 16. You got the first bowl, which are the sores of man on mankind. You got the second bowl, which is the sea turns to blood. You got the third bowl, which is the waters turned to, to blood. You got the fourth bowl. There's some horrible stuff. The sun scorches men. We got the fifth bowl. You got total darkness. You got the sixth bowl. You got the battle of Armageddon. And then you got the seventh bowl, which is another great earthquake that marks the second coming of the Lord. Now you know all about the great tribulation. Y'all want to pick up in chapter number 19 or y'all want to go through this? Well, whether you like it or not, we're going to go through it. Now, when I introduced the book of Revelation, I said that there are several different approaches to interpreting this material on the great tribulation. And I want to make you aware of these various methods because you're going to see these if you listen to any of these prophecy gurus on the radio, if you listen to uh, uh, some of the, I'm, I'm talking about some really mainstream denominational pastors that teach on the book of Revelation. They use some of these, what I believe are aberrant methods, and so I want to make you aware of these methods and tell you why I believe they're wrong. I really think if you read through Revelation and you've got any common sense, you can see why they're wrong. You don't need me to tell you that. But let me just make you aware of them. First of all, there's preterism. We've talked about preterism. And preterism is a historical method of interpreting the book of Revelation. And the preterists believe that everything that happens in these, in these uh, seven uh, seals and these seven trumpets and these seven bowls of wrath happened in the first century A.D. under the Roman persecution that took place against the church in that late latter part of the first century. Now, you got to really stretch things to say that the battle of Armageddon's already taken place, that there was total darkness, that the waters have been turned to blood, that the stars have been struck, that there's been a plague of locusts. None of that stuff historically happened in the first century. And so you got to do all sorts of subjective dancing to get your theology to fit with what the Bible says. To me, if you take this approach, it's almost laughable. There's a guy, one of the major heroes, supposedly stars of the Christian faith, is an adherent to this preterism. I'm not going to name his name. You'll have to figure him out yourself. And if you listened to him and you hadn't figured it out, woe to you. Because that means you're really illiterate in biblical things. And I'm not going to pick on this guy, but... But uh, uh, none of that stuff, none of that stuff. You, you read what we're going to read. I, 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 if that's the way you interpret these 13 chapters, I would love to see the way you interpret the rest of the Bible. Because that is, it, you're engaging in absolute silliness if you interpret these things with a preteristic, uh, view, from a preteristic viewpoint. You've got to really use a lot of subjective interpretation. I don't like that at all. I've probably made that clear. All right. The second uh, method of interpretation, and I'll give it my own name here, is the the modified historical approach. And the modified historical approach, and you see this with a lot of mainstream prophecy teachers, the modified historical approach teaches that many of these events in Revelation have already taken place and some of them are still yet to take place. They have taken place over history, and now they're yet to take place. Any of you ever listened to a guy named Urban Baxter? And I usually don't name names, and I'll name Urban Baxter's name because I've got to tell you, he's pretty sharp, and he's, very, he's a very good prophecy teacher. 
But here's where I think he goes wrong. And this is my opinion, and, I, I, and I'm trying to base my opinion not upon my opinion but upon Scripture. But where he goes wrong, he uses this modified historical approach. Uh, let me give you some examples. He would say that World War I and World War II were part of the trumpets and seals in the book of Revelation. He, when the Iraq wars took place, he saw them as one of the seals being opened uh, in the book of Revelation. And so if you listen to a guy like Urban Baxter, and I use him because he's very good at what he does, and he's well studied, but what he do, where he makes this mistake, and I think any biblical teacher that tries to put their own subjective sensationalism into their interpretation of Scripture, they're going to run into trouble. That's why you like, got to let Scripture interpret Scripture. But, but World War II and Hitler, now you got to, they were pretty, that was pretty bad, wasn't it? And you could see where maybe that might be one of these trumpets. I mean, there are some things that happen in the book of Revelation that are very similar uh, in this part of the book of Revelation that are very similar to what took place in World War II. Hitler was certainly a type of the Antichrist. I mean, the, the Holocaust was certainly a type of the Holocaust that's going to take place uh, during the Great Tribulation. And he would say that it's already taken place. That part of the Great Tribulation has already taken place. Here's my problem. If you believe that, you have to ignore the rapture. See, because what we're teaching and what I believe the Bible teaches very clearly and, and this is the third method of interpretation, is that all these events are future. They have not yet taken place. And I base that primarily, my foundational reason for, for that belief is the book of Daniel. Now, I'm not going to have time to go with you to the book of Daniel and study the whole book of Daniel, but there is one week missing in prophecy in the book of Daniel, and that week is when the great tribulation, the time of Jacob's troubles, takes place. It has not taken place yet. It can't take place, according to Daniel and according to Paul, until the Antichrist is revealed. And it can't take place until the abomination of these things that we read about here. First, the abomination of desolation has to take place. And what has to take place before all of that takes place? The rapture of the church. And so that's why we were given these scenes in chapter 4 and chapter 5 of heaven where we see the church in heaven. And, and, and so the rapture has to take place. Listen, listen to a man much more qualified than me on this issue. Listen to what he has to say. H.A. Ironside, some of you might know who I'm talking about. Uh, he was a preeminent scholar of prophecy and, and a very biblically conservative scholar. But listen to what he said about this, the timing of the Great Tribulation. He says, I repeat, I repeat, he says it in several other places, but here he says, I repeat, the tribulation cannot begin until the redeemed are gathered around the throne of the Lord in glory and crowned there. And it cannot be emphasized too much that no saints on earth or in heaven have yet been crowned. We haven't received our crowns yet. Now, let me show you what he bases that upon, or one of the scriptures he bases it upon. Go with me to 2 Timothy. I hope I can find this. I don't have my reference, so I'm, I believe it's 2 Timothy. If it's not, my, if it's, yeah, okay. 2 Timothy chapter 4. And look at verse number 8. All right, here we go. Finally, finally. Paul, whenever he says finally, he, he doesn't mean it. Finally, there is, most importantly is what he means here. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me when? On, during World War II? During my persecution of the first century? No, on that day. Notice day is capitalized, its reason is capitalized because it refers to the day of the Lord. And what event begins the day of the Lord? The rapture of the church. 
and not to me only, but everybody who has loved his appearing. His appearing for the church. Everybody who has loved the appearing of Jesus Christ, who longed for his appearing. Let me tell you what, if you don't long for his appearing, he ain't going to appear to you. You're part of the apostate church, and you'll be here during the Great Tribulation. But if you're waiting and you're watching and you're longing for the Lord to come, if you're every day, and not every, maybe not every day, but just every time you're in trouble, Lord, come quickly. You know, help. Get me out of here. Beam me up, Scotty, however you word it. Get me out of here. If you love his appearing, then when he appears, you're going to go with him to heaven and you're going to be crowned with a crown of righteousness. That's the day when all the saints are gathered around the throne. That's what we see in chapters 4, we see in chapter 5. And they're given their crowns, and what do they do with their crowns? They throw them at the feet of Jesus. He's going to give those crowns back, by the way. He's going to give those crowns back, and we're going to wear them forever. The reason we throw them at his feet, and, and that's going to be something, you, when you see the Lord in his glory, the natural thing to do is going to say, you, you don't want to be wearing any crowns. He's the one who deserves the crown. He was the lamb who, in the midst of the throne who was slain before the foundation of the world. He's the lion of Judah. He's the great eagle. He's the man, God-man. He's God Almighty, the first, the last, the beginning, the end, the one who was, who is, the one who is to come. He is him. And so in that day, we're going to cast our crowns on him, but we're going to be in heaven with him. And so all the events that we look at after chapter 5, after we're in heaven and we're crowned, those are the events of the great tribulation of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, even then, if, even if you use the futuristic interpretation of this great tribulation, there's disagreement as to how to interpret it. And, and this is where it gets kind of foggy. I definitely believe everything that happens in chapters 6 through 19, really 6 through 22 is future. All of it's future except for chapter 12. And when we get to chapter 12, like, uh, we'll go back into time, way back in time. But except for chapter 12, all of it is future. Now, as far as the disagreement of the interpretation, again, looking at your bulletins there, it, it's, it centers around the timing of the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. There are some people who see these things as three distinct uh, sets of judgments. And there, and there are others who believe that the seals and the, tr the, seals and the trumpets and the, and the bowls are the same thing just given to us in a different way. So there's two ways to interpret this. And I'm of the conclusion that these are three distinct chronological sets of judgments because that's the way they're given to us in the Bible. But others see that differently. All right. Now, they do overlap. So, in one way, you could say that they're all the same. Because, again, David, if you put that uh, slide up again, if you have your bulletins, you can look at it there. The seventh seal is the seven trumpets. And so, the seven trumpets are part of the seven seals, right? And if you look at the seventh trumpet, if David would go to the slide of the trumpets, now the seventh trumpet is the seven bowls of wrath. And so the seven bowls of wrath are part of the seven trumpets, and the seven trumpets are part of the seven seals. So really they are all related in that sense. But other than that, these specific events, I believe for the most part, are chronological. Now, does that mean that all of this takes place in perfect chronological sequence? No, most of it, but not all of it. Because, let me give you some examples. In chapter number 13, we're going, to be, we're going to hear about the beast who comes out of the sea. Who is the beast who comes out of the sea? The Antichrist. And then in chapter number 6, we're going to see the Antichrist come out of the sea. But this time he's going to be what? He's going to be riding on a horse. And so we see him in 6 and we see him in chapter 13. Uh, also, when we get to chapter 7, we'll see the 144,000 witnesses. I'm one of those, by the way. And no, I'm not. As a lot of people have told me they're one of the 144,000 witnesses. And I always say, well, I am too. Good. They say, no, you're not. The Jehovah's Witnesses are really the 144,000 witnesses. No, if that's, you're listening on tape, I did not mean that. Don't send me any letters. Nobody sends me any letters anyway. But, 
But we get also see the 144,000 in chapter 14. So there is some things, you can't say that everything in Revelation chapters 6 through 22 is chronological. There is some things that are taken out of time, especially chapter number 12. We'll get there, I'll show that to you later on. So that tells me that it's these people that chart these things out with this exact precision, uh, they're engaging in folly in my opinion. I don't believe you can do that. There's no exact chronological table for everything that's going to happen uh, in chapters 6 through 19. But I do believe, for the most part, the seven trumpets that we see here, the seven seals, the seven bowls of wrath, are successive events that make up the great tribulation. I don't believe that they're that the seals are the same, all the same as the trumpets and, and the wrath, and just a different way of saying it. We'll, we'll, we'll look at this in more detail as we, we get specific uh, in our study of, uh, of the Great Tribulation. Now, I want to answer that question before we, as we finish up here, before we do the Lord's Supper today. I want to answer that question. How could a loving God, a loving God, pour out such terrible judgments on his creation, especially the human race whom he created in his own image. I mean, how could a loving God do that? Well, let me suggest to you, and I say suggest to you because I really can back this up biblically, but let me give you three reasons why God is justified are his reasons for severely judging this world in the Great Tribulation. The first reason, and maybe the primary reason, what is this seven years called? What's it called? Those of you that believe you're going to go through the Tribulation, is it called the time of Peter's trouble? The time of the church's trouble? The time of uh, John's trouble? The time of George's trouble? The time of Calvary Chapel's trouble is called the time of Jacob's trouble. It is all about Israel. The time of the Gentiles, when we come to this point, has been fulfilled. That's why the church has been pulled out of here. Because now God is going to work on Israel. He's got, it's the time of Jacob's trouble. I read to you recently, and let me read it to you again, a passage from Daniel chapter 12. Daniel was told by the Lord that when the will of the holy people, the people of Israel, the Israelites, has been completely shattered, these things shall be finished. The great tribulation shall be finished. So what's the purpose of the great tribulation? To prepare Israel to meet their Messiah. And that's what it's going to take to prepare them. You think about it. Do you think they would be back in the Holy Land of Israel right now if there wasn't a Holocaust? No. They make too much money in this world. They have too many good things going on in this world. God had to threaten them with their very lives to get them to move out of those places where they, where they had been scattered during those diasporas that they were part of when they were uh, dispersed by the Romans and dispersed by the Babylonians and dispersed by the Assyrians. And God brings them back in these last days. And it took the Holocaust to get them back. But even then, they don't want Jesus Christ as their Messiah. They're not going to want Jesus Christ as their Messiah until their hearts are prepared to receive him as their Messiah. And it's going to take the great tribulation to do that. And then we're told in Zechariah chapter 12 that God will pour out his spirit on his people and they will see Jesus Christ and they will recognize him as the one they pierced, the one they crucified. He is their Messiah and they will mourn as a mother mourns for the loss of her only child. That's what it's going to take. And that's, I think, the main reason that God takes this world through the great tribulation. The second reason... I believe, and I believe the Bible's clear about this, and we'll see this in the book of Revelation, is to save a remnant of those who are part of the apostate church. If you come in here next Sunday, and we're all gone except for you, you need to weep. 
you need to feel really bad because you're about to go through some difficult time. But I've got good news for you. You're probably going to lose your head, but you can still get saved. You don't necessarily have to lose your soul. I mean, it's just like it's going to take a very difficult time to wake the Israelites up and prepare them to receive their Messiah. The apostate church is just as bad. And it's going to take some terrible events to get them to the point where they're broken, shattered, their will is shattered, so that they're in a position that they're truly ready to make Jesus Christ Lord of their lives. I mean, we either do that voluntarily, or God will try to do it for us. And that's what the great, one of the points of the Great Tribulation. Well, couldn't he just do that with some natural disasters or some terrible things that happen to our country? Hello? I mean, what about all these hurricanes that hit the United States of America? What about these 50 people slaughtered in a, in a, a country music concert? What about, I mean, what about all of these terrorist attacks throughout the world? What about all these wars and rumors of wars? We might have a missile being lobbed at us any moment by that idiot in North Korea. And you know what we do? We go right on with our lives as if nothing has ever happened. The Apostate church goes right on living as if nothing had ever happened. We stick our heads in the sand. We, we do that with death. We do that with everything. We lose somebody and we dress them all up, make them look, aren't they beautiful in that casket? Nobody's beautiful dead. Nobody's beautiful dead. That's why I don't even want mine open. That'd make me sick if you told me I was beautiful in there. <laughs> Tell me that now. I don't want to hear that when I'm dead. But if all these things can't wake us up, God's going to have to do something drastic to wake this world up. And let me tell you what, the Great Tribulation is pretty drastic. You will either say, Uncle, or you will say, let the rocks follow me. I hate you, and I don't want you, and I would rather die and perish than have you as my God. Those are going to be the choices at some point. The third reason, and the world doesn't want to hear this, this wicked world doesn't want to hear this. But this, work it, this wicked world and these wicked people are going to be judged in the Great Tribulation. The wicked and the wickedness will be removed from this earth once and for all. People don't want to hear that. How could God do that? Let me tell you what, he would have done that to you and I if we had not been redeemed. If you're not born again and you're not being made perfect by the Spirit of God and you will be totally perfect when you see Christ in glory, you're not going to be here. This is not going to be a place for the wicked. The wicked don't want to be here when Christ is ruling and reigning and truth and righteousness rule and reign on this earth. You look at all the scandals going on in the United States right now in our Senate, in, in, in Hollywood, I mean, you expect it there. But not in the Senate, in the House, and all of these, these sexual scandals that are going on. That's going to end. It's going to end when the Lord comes back. It's going to end during the Great Tribulation. God is going to rid this world of that stuff. And truth and righteousness are going to reign on this earth. And those who hate God, and refuse to be redeemed will not be here. They're going to perish in the great tribulation. Just like my sin is being removed from my soul by the Spirit of God, the sin of, and, of this world and sinners who refuse to be redeemed, they're going to be removed too. This past Wednesday night, again, it's amazing how these things correlate, but this past Wednesday night we, look at, we looked at Zechariah 6 vision. The, the vision of the woman in the basket. And she's carried away by two women. And she's carried away to Babylon. And, and, and Zechariah asks, what is this woman? And, and the Lord says to Zechariah, it is wickedness. It is the wicked way of this world. And the message of this vision is the same message that we get in the book of Revelation. That in the great tribulation, God will use the wicked to destroy the wicked. 
That's why she's carried away. This wicked woman's carried away by two women to Babylon, to Babylon that's going to be destroyed. And that tie fits perfectly to the complete destruction you see of the mystery Babylon over in chapters 17 and 18 of Revelation. She's the mother of all harlots. She represents all the wicked things and wicked people that draw mankind away from God. That's what she represents. Especially idols and false religions and money, the love of money, not money itself, the love of money and the love of things, all of that, that what we call the present world system, is going to be carried away in the great tribulation. That's part of God's purpose is to carry all of that out of here. All of that's going to be gone. Why does God destroy the world system? In the end, because he loves us and he wants to clear the way for us to have a great relationship with him. The kind of relationship we ought to have now. Most of us don't. So, like I told the group Wednesday night, after the Great Tribulation, this world's going to look a lot different than it looked before. When the millennium begins, this is going to be a different place altogether. All those things in life that have come between us and God, they'll be gone. All those idols, all those sins that have come between us and God, They'll be gone. I mentioned this Wednesday night, but I don't believe there'll be any TV. You take away what's bad TV, what do you got left? It's gone. Movies, gone. Computers, gone. I got. I hate to tell you this one, guys. I, I hated to say it Wednesday night. iPhones, gone, gone. All our idols, all our sins, gone. I don't think there'll be any cars. All our sports, wait a minute, before I get to that, no more sports except for golf and baseball. <laughs> I'll only be the only ones left. No more cars. I don't believe there'll be cars. You'll either be getting around on a horse or a motorcycle. Imagine a world where you only have time for God and serving God. Time for family. Time for friends. You know, to some people that sounds horrific. To me it sounds wonderful. When God comes and judges this earth, once that's over, He's going to make all things beautiful in his time. This earth is going to be, have the beauty that it once had. It's going to be what it was intended to be. You and I are going to be what we were intended to be. Children of God. Children of God living in peace and joy and truth and righteousness. Serving God Almighty. But first, before that happens, the great tribulation has to begin. Got good news for us, though. We're not going to be here during the great tribulation. We're going to be at the wedding supper of the Lamb. We're going to be casting crowns and praising God. And then when that seven years is up, we're going to return with Christ. And we're going to rule and reign with him for a thousand years. I don't know about you, but I'm really looking forward to that day. A few months or so back, I had a chance to ride my motorcycle up to 
uh, Mena, Arkansas, the Queen Wilhelmina Park. I don't know if any of you have ever been there before. But I got up there and there was no cell service. So I couldn't use my phone. Got into, my, into the lodge and beautiful room, fireplaces, beautiful lodge, beautiful views up on top of this mountain. No cable. A cable, just basic cable, nothing to watch. All I had to do was just to think about God, spend some time with Brenda, have a good meal, enjoy the good things in life. Got on that bike the next day and I rode to uh, Hot Springs, Arkansas. And I think I maybe saw about 10 cars the whole trip, the whole 150 miles. About that many houses. And I got to tell you, I was just reminded of how peaceful it is when you get away from this rat race of life. And I got just, I think of just a little bit of taste of what it's going to be like when Jesus Christ comes back to this earth. And all of that beauty of this earth is restored. And we live in peace and joy and truth and righteousness. Now all I can say again is Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for the hope that we have in our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for that grand and glorious day that you've promised us, Lord, when you're going to come for your bride, your church. Lord, we have not been appointed to wrath, and so, Lord, when the, your wrath comes upon this earth, when the time of Jacob's trouble begin, your time with the Gentiles is over, and, Lord, we will be with you in glory. We look forward to that day, Lord. We look forward to the day when you rule and reign on this earth, and all things are made right. Lord, we know you're delaying for a reason. We're delaying your coming. You're delaying, Lord, because you love this lost and dying world, even now. Lord, I just ask that during this time that you make us ambassadors that aren't afraid to warn people that time is short, that you're soon coming and your judgment of this earth is, is upon us. Lord, just help us to be those kind of people with the courage to share the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. We ask that in Christ's name. Amen.